Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. I remember growing up, and those who are my age or older remember this too, those younger may not remember this, a uh, game show on TV. It was called To Tell the Truth. You guys remember that? Oh, you remember that? Okay, you've seen that. Uh, there'd be three individuals there on the stage, and the uh, panelists would ask them questions. And at the end, the panelists would guess which one was the real John Doe, if you will, or whoever it was. The other two were imposters. And of course, at the end, they would kind of fake standing up, and then the person would stand up who was real John Doe, and everybody would go, oh, that's the real person. You know, they were always, always surprised. And, and uh, I think maybe that's what John's doing here. Maybe not saying it the same way, different individuals, but he's saying, who's the real Jesus? Who, who is this guy? You know, we, we, we go to Sunday school so often, and we have this view of, in Sunday school of Jesus being a Mr. Rogers with a beard. Meek and mild, the lamb over on his shoulder, and who, who doesn't love this guy? We, we do that. But somehow he gets crucified at the end. Something, you don't crucify Mr. Rogers, do you? So who is this guy who would make a whip and drive people out of the house of God? Not Mr. Rogers. Let's be nice. Let's be kind. Today, our text has two important things about Jesus that may not be so apparent at first. The sign, last week, so the sign of the wine. And today is a sign of the temple. The first point is this, Jesus claims authority over the temple. And of course, you know, the persons in charge of the temple were the high priest and his family, the Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple. Jesus' action in our text today, he is claiming authority over the temple. Now, the very beginning in, in verse 13 talks about the Passover of the Jews, the Jewish Passover. Now, many of you are familiar with Passover, and especially in the first century in, in Judaism, but this was an annual event in the springtime, and the population of Jerusalem would probably triple in size. It was really, by law, I guess, if you were an adult male within walking distance, you know, 60 miles or so of Jerusalem, you were required to come to Jerusalem three times at three different feasts during the year. Now, others who live far away would come if they could, and, and some, but, but Jerusalem, which was not really a small city, would expand, would triple in size. All these religious pilgrims were coming, come to worship, and come to worship with their sacrifices. And well, I'm jumping ahead here, but the last week of Jesus' life as it was at Passover, and lots of the Roman soldiers were there, and the governor, because this was a, a, a tense time, that many Jews coming at one time. It might be a riot, it might be an insurrection, who knows? because Jerusalem was full of religious pilgrims at this time. And he talks about going, in verse 14, to the temple. And he talks about specifically the, the court of the Gentiles. And we'll look at that in, in just a moment. But uh, as they came to the temple to worship, every man in Israel, and probably every man, the Jewish man, even in the Roman Empire, were required to pay an annual temple tax. 
a half a shekel. That's about two days' wages. Imagine two days of your wages, that was the tax you owed yearly to help keep up the temple. So people were bringing in money for that when they came. And they had to use temple money to give their sacrifices to, to worship. So you would bring your denarii and ever what coinage you had, they had the time, and they had to bring it and exchange it for temple money. You know, if you go overseas, you got to exchange your dollars for pesos or euros or whatever. That's what we're doing here. They're exchanging their money for temple money. And there's always, when you exchange money, you're always losing something. <laughs> That's part of the exchange. So they were losing value in that sense. They were, uh, because of, of that, they're getting uh, ripped off, you might say. Um, then these worshipers, they came to the temple on Passover and any time, really, would bring their sacrifices. Now, I guess in theory, a traveler could bring their own lamb or sheep or goat or whatever to the temple. I'm sure they could, but it had to be inspected by the priestly clan. And usually they weren't perfect. They weren't ready, or they would say, oh, there's a flaw here in this lamb. We can't use that. You've got to buy one of ours that's been approved, the USDA seal of approval on it. This has been approved by the temple. This is a, a, a sheep or a goat or whatever that's been uh, certified that it is uh, perfect to be a sacrifice animal. So you've got to buy that sacrifice. And this is happening. Now, he says it's in the court of, of Gentiles. And can you see this picture here? Um, let me just kind of, this is the temple proper. This is inside where the, the priest would go in. But right outside is where they do the sacrifices. Now, this is a picture of the temple at Jesus' time, the Herod's temple. And, and this is, the whole thing's the temple, and this is the, the court of the Gentiles, this whole plaza area. See over here, this is the plaza area here. Uh, this is where Gentiles, non-Jews, could come into the temple. And they could pray. Uh, they wouldn't be doing any sacrificing, probably. If they did, they, they would not go uh, through this. Only a Jew could go through this. And right in the first section is the court of women. Jewish women could go there. The next place was for Jewish men, and the next places were for priests only, and then only the high priest and the Holy of Holies back in the back once a year. But this, this plaza area is a court of Gentiles, and this is where all this is happening, all this uh, commerce, uh, you might say. Now, um, so, so this outer courts of the temple, this, I call them a plaza, is the only place where Gentiles could come and worship. And Gentiles did come and worship the, the God of the Jews. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and others would come, and there were other Jews, uh, non-Jews would come to worship the Jewish God, and, but they were not allowed to pass a certain point. In fact, at that, that doorway there into the, into the building, it would say that Gentiles could not come through this door upon point of death. If you did this, we would kill you. That's how important this was for, for non-Jews excuse me, to, to go through there. So the outer courts, that plaza, is filled with oxen and lambs and doves, and there really was no place for a Gentile to pray and to worship God. Now, can you imagine trying to pray in the midst of a virtual stockyard? With all the noise of animals and the bickering of businessmen, over here, they're exchanging money, and over here, you're buying this. Over here is where the, the, the goats are kept so we can sell them to you to be sacrificed. And you can, you can just imagine with me, kind of like the state fair, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you might think of something else. 
Um, so can, can, can you conceive of trying to squeeze between the, the cattle that are lined up in the courts? Uh, think of me like to, to, to watch where you walk or lest you step on something undesirable. Uh, it appears in all practicality, Gentile worship was not happening. It was prohibited, at least functionally prohibited. And I doubt this really troubled many Jews. We don't want these Gentiles coming anyway. You know, this is, this is really for us, even though there's a place right here. So they're not really concerned about this. And so, so those who are not really that excited about including Gentiles at all in the worship of here. So that's what's kind of going on, the atmosphere here at this, at this time. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and, and, and he comes into, into the court of Gentiles, into this plaza, and, and he's troubled by this. He, he's troubled a great deal. The place of prayer for the Gentiles... The place of prayer has become a marketplace, a profit-taking place. As John describes this, it comes across more like the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You've seen this on TV. They're going crazy. It smells more like a barnyard than a place you would experience God's presence. Jesus enters the outer court of the temple and he fashions a whip from materials at hand and he dries them all out, the temple area. And the coins here, the, the, the money changes have, he, he turns the table over. He says, take these things away from here. Do not let my father's house be a house of trade. That's what he says there in verse 16. And house of trade, I think, literally means emporium. And one modern translation says a shopping mall. That's kind of like the, the atmosphere here is what I'm talking about. So the, the wonder of it all is, is how Jesus managed to, to cleanse the temple without any real resistance. Do you notice that? There's no resistance here. They kind of stand back and, and watch, him, uh, watch him do this. So, so why did they allow Jesus to do what he did? How did they allow Jesus to, to drive these money changers out or to drive these animals out? I may give you a few suggestions and possibilities here. First of all, Jesus was absolutely right. The immoral men shrunk back when their evil was exposed. They knew they were guilty of doing that. Second, although the business enterprise was owned and operated by the religious establishment, it was despised by the masses. The people knew they were getting ripped off by the authorities. And this was the authorities of, of, of their nation, of their religion. Now, shortly before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, the, the practice was even abandoned due to popular measure or pressure. Even this early point in Jesus' ministry, and, and John records this very early in his ministry, the Jewish leaders recognized that the Lord had popular support in what he was doing. They understood that. Finally, they recognized that here, at the very least, was a powerful personality. And this act made a real impressionable claim for himself. Who is this guy doing this? Oh, my goodness. What's his name? Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to pay attention to him. Now, what did Jesus do? He, he, he acted as if he, he acted as he did because God's house was being desecrated. There was worship here without reverence. People trying to worship, genuinely, some not genuinely, but there's no reverence there. It, 
And he tried to show that the whole system of animal sacrifices was completely irreverent, irrelevant. God wants the heart and not the, the external only. Now, if you've read recently or in times past the book of Amos, as he's talking with the Israelites before their captivity uh, in Babylon, uh, he was talking to them um, how they were very religious outwardly, but they had a corrupt heart. They were oppressing the poor and so forth. But so what you're doing, God says, the, the smell is a stench in my nose. You do all the right things, but it's not the right thing because your heart is not right. That's what's happening here. God wants the heart, not the externalness of religion only. These aids are fine if they don't want to come in into themselves. Sacrifice, God called for sacrifice. But it's not just doing, killing the animal and presenting the animal to the, the priest and the temple and to God if your heart's not right. That's just external. And see, and as I said earlier, the conduct of the temple court shut out the seeking Gentiles from the presence of God. So the Jews, in essence, from way long ago, were supposed to be missionaries for Yahweh. And they kind of said, if you want God, we got him here. You come here. Off subject a little bit, but sometimes we Christian churches do that. We got God. You come to church service. God's here, but we need to take God out there. Amen. That's what the Jews did not do. And they didn't really concern themselves with the Gentiles who came. Eh. So Jesus acts out of zeal for his father's house, which is a, a fulfilled prophecy uh, we see there in chapter, in, in verse 17. He's laying claim to the temple and cleansing it in his father's name. My father's house should not be this way. In doing so, he fulfills a prophecy of the Lord's zeal for his father's house that will bring about his death. And I think the second cleansing of the temple, so-called later on in, at the end of his ministry, actually sets into motion events that leads to his crucifixion. So Jesus, by the act he did, was claiming the authority of the temple. This is my father's house. I'm his son. I'm the heir here. I'm in charge here. Let me, this isn't right. Second, Jesus predicts that he will supersede the temple. That's verses 18 to 22. See, I think the Jewish leaders knew exactly the significance of Jesus' action. They knew it was an act of him claiming to be God's Messiah. Everything that the, the law and the prophets said in what we call the Old Testament, they recognized Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah the Old Testament talked about. And they intended to force his hand by the statement like in, in verse 18. In verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? You're claiming to be the Messiah because you're claiming to be in charge of the temple here. Okay, great. We, we hear your claim. Back it up. What sign are you going to show us that you really indeed are the Messiah? That you can prove that with a shadow of doubt that you're in charge of the temple. Show us. Now, I think the words the Jews give here are most interesting. They, they don't argue with Jesus about the evil that was taking place in temple courts, making it into an emporium. And I suspect a lot of the Pharisees this time probably agreed with Jesus. Yes, Jesus, go for it, buddy. You know, this is a corrupt place. 
you know, these Sadducees, they got it all wrong. We got it right. And I wish I had done that, but I'm glad you did that, Jesus. So the issue is not what had been done, but who did it. They raise the issue of Jesus' identity, his authority, which is not altogether hard to understand. Now, let's suppose you run a stop light, stop sign, stop sign here in Kinston somewhere, and you're pulled by a policeman. And if you're smart, you politely listen to the officer, admit you were wrong, and take the ticket and pay for it. I mean, that's just what you need to do. But however, I'm thinking of intersection in town, and if you went through the intersection and there's a person sitting in his lawn chair, a citizen, and you run that stop sign, and he pulls you over. So my rate citizen pulls you over. Mayberry, citizen's arrest. Okay, I won't go there. Okay. Uh, so our rate citizen pulls you over. Would you be inclined to listen to him? What authority do you have to yell at me? Who are you to stop me because I went through that stop sign? How, why, what authority have, do you have to lecture me about my driving? You got zero, buddy. You got zero. <laughs> So in one sense, the Jews do view our, our Lord's actions as a sign. For someone to cleanse a temple and correct wrongdoing, there's some implications that he has the authority to do that, that he's a policeman, you might say. If Jesus is acting in God's behalf, then let him establish the credentials by the exercise of his divine power. Okay, if you're saying you're in charge, you have the authority, prove it. Show us some sign to prove who you are who you are. Now, we have kind of an um, uh, irreverent expression which kind of captures the spirit of this Jewish challenge. We kind of we say, put up or shut up. You're right? I mean, talk's cheap, Jesus. Action's cheap. Show us that you have the authority to do this. They were throwing down the gauntlet. Now, Jesus turned to respond to that. How does he respond? He gives no sign. He does not even refer to any of the signs that he seems to have already done in Jerusalem. He's not about to jump through their hoops. He doesn't even seem to try to convince them who he is. Instead, he speaks about an ultimate sign, his death and resurrection. Look at verse 19. He says to them, this is the sign, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. Now, these Jews are thinking in the most literal sense. They're looking at that, can I go back here? Yeah, they're looking at that temple, Herod's temple. This is the Herod that was around when Jesus was born, temple. He started it. It's taken 46 years to build to the place they were at the time, and they weren't finished until about close to A.D. 70 when it got destroyed. So it's still, still being built. But they're saying it took us 46 years to this point, and who are you to say in three days, tear this thing down, you build it back up again in three days? Well, they took it, they took it very literal, and that's not what, what Jesus meant was this building. Now, John tells us here that what the readers, you and I, know already, because we know the story, Jesus is not speaking about that earthly temple. He knows that too will be destroyed in AD 70, but he's speaking about himself, the temple of God and his own coming crucifixion some few years later. So he's not trying to persuade the Jews to believe in him, but rather to a prophecy that they will not believe in him, and rather they will crucify him later on. 
His triumph will be evident in three days. He'll be raised from the dead. The Jews do not understand this at all at this point. They don't, don't understand it at all. They probably walk away shaking their heads, convinced that this guy is out of his mind. He calls himself a prophet or people think he's a prophet or a preacher or something, a holy man of some sort. But, and his disciples don't understand either yet. They're just beginning their school and walking with Jesus. And it's not until the Lord's death and his resurrection, this prophecy come to mind, and they see how he does fulfill it. But it takes take a while if that happens. Jesus did not prove that he was the Son of God by his perfected life or by his great miracles we're going to look at later, or by his unsurpassed teaching. He proved his divinity. He proved the Son of God by rising from the dead. This temple was destroyed in three days, it will rise up again. The temple, see friends, a temple is where one goes to worship God. If you were a Jew, you came to the temple, that's where God, that's where, that's where God lived. Now, they knew God didn't live there. God can't be put in a house. But that's where God and man met, was at the temple. That's where you go to the temple and meet God. And that's where the holy God meets a sinful man. And Jesus is saying here that he has or soon will replace that building, the temple, as a place where sinful men and women meet the one true holy God that we saw reflected in our song in the reading of Revelation 4 and 5. Jesus replaces the temple by his death on the cross for sin and by his resurrection. Do you remember we looked at, and, and you know already when I went through the gospel according to Mark, when Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil was split in half. Basically saying, well, we have access to God, but the temple is no longer relevant. Jesus sacrificed. All the animal sacrifices, all the years, centuries, done at the temple and in the tabernacle pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So the tabernacle slash temple is no longer relevant. There's no more need for a temple. Here in our chapter, the temple is being abused, and, and Jesus rightly responds to that abuse. Even the hard-hearted Jewish religious leaders realize more is going on than just him kicking some people out. They understood that Jesus is making a claim. He's claiming to have the authority to correct the evils performed in this temple. He actually calls the temple his father's house. No one actually witnessed this event, fully grasped the meaning or significance of what Jesus was saying here. They heard the words, but they still beyond them. Disciples will understand later, after the resurrection and after the day of Pentecost. Jesus not only came with God's authority, as a prophet might do, he came as God. In fact, he is God tabernacling among men, as John tells us in John 1.14, how the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Remember I said, moved into the neighborhood? He speaks himself as a temple. And so he is. Just listen. I'm going to read from Revelation again. This is Revelation 21, next to last chapter. Revelation 21, beginning at verse 22 to 27. This is John looking at the new heavens and new earth. And, and John says in 21, 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, to walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no temple because Jesus is the temple, and he lives amongst his people, literally, here in the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. You see, the, the cleansing, so-called cleansing of the temple, Jesus is symbolizing it symbolically comes to possess what as God is his. This temple is mine, and I'm going to replace it. As the son of God, the temple is his father's house, and he thus has a right to correct the temple abuses. He has a right to drive out the men and the animals out of the temple courts. You see, Jesus is seeking men and women who will trust who he is and what he's done. I don't mean in the temple courts, did on the cross. And God raising him from the dead, the resurrection. There were many who saw Jesus and his miracles and his works and did not believe or trust in him. Now, we saw last week with the sign of the wine, no one really saw the miracle. I mean, the, the servants did and the, and the disciples understood. It was kind of quiet. This was not a quiet sign. This is, front of, we say, front of God and everybody. And all those people who saw this, a lot of people saw what Jesus did that day, did not believe, did not trust in Jesus. But there were disciples who believed and trusted their lives to him. And they started growing in more understanding and belief and trusting. There were those there who tried to profit from religion. And others who wanted a personal relationship with the creator God. And we can have that through his son. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this noisy miracle, noisy sign of your messiahship. We thank you for the claim you give over the temple, but the claim you have over our lives. Thank you for showing yourself to us and help us to trust you, help us to believe in you and who you are what you've done, especially what you've done on the cross for our sin. Thank you for showing us through the gospel accounts and through your spirit that we're sinners and we need a Savior. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for being the way. Thank you for providing the way for us to have our sins forgiven and have a relationship with you now and forevermore. We thank you for being Lord of the temple. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.